Okay, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it's Wednesday, October 22nd, which means we're just a little more than three weeks from the start of the college basketball season. Right now, in the middle of uh, all our preseason rollout here at CBSSports.com, we got lots of conference previews and other stuff at the site right now, so make sure you're checking that out. Our list of top 100 players, among other things, that's coming next week, uh, but we'll get to that next week. Right now, as usual... Uh, Matt Norlander's here with me on the Island College Basketball Podcast, which, of course, is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com slash Sports and use the offer code FUN. So, Norlander, the big news of the day, a report commissioned by the University of North Carolina says school academic advisors steered athletes, including basketball players, into sham classes over an 18-year period, uh, but the report did not directly implicate any coaches or athletic administrators in the scheme. One important uh, thing to point out, given that this is the Ion College Basketball Podcast, um, they do acknowledge that 10 of the 15 players on the 2005 North Carolina National Championship team, coached by Roy Williams, were AFAM majors, which, of course, is the department uh, that had all of the paper classes. What do you make of this? Well, uh, this is, you know, a pretty big story, one that's been ongoing. Um, UNC's hope from this is that they can get closure, and it's a, a massive stain on the university's reputation. It goes beyond just athletics. Um, the, I mean, there's a ton of stats, and we're recording this less than an hour after it was released. We've both read through a lot of it uh, and, and kind of tried to hit the bullet points for you as we record this podcast for anyone listening that might have seen the headlines briefly graze through the story. We're going to try and give you as much perspective on this as I guess we can um, one thing that stood out to me, um, is that the length of this, it, this is an independent report, by the way, this is not the NCAA. This is not UNC. This is an outside investigator, Kenneth Wanstein, who did this, uh, a respected man in that area who really grilled a lot of people, uh, over this more than a hundred easily. Um, it lasted 18 years. It, it went from 1993 to 2011. That's pretty uh, amazing. Um, since we're not going to give any time to him the rest of the podcast, uh, in the report, Rashad McCants, basically all of his claims about you know getting uh, help uh, in phony papers with tutors and cheating and all that stuff, that could not be confirmed or corroborated. Um, the NCAA did put out a statement um, with this coming out, and it just basically said they continue to engage an in independent cooperative effort to review the information. So the NCAA is not done with this, but this is the biggest revelation regarding North Carolina and its issues with academic impropriety. Without a doubt, it happened. Players benefited. There's still suspicious things from the past, like them suddenly stop stopping being AFAM majors back in around 2009. And yet Roy Williams has been largely absolved of this um, to a certain extent. And I know we're going to get into that GP. Um, you know, the school and the report notes that the investigation found no wrongdoing in any academic departments beside um, AFAM, Afro-American studies. Um, I guess that's a minor silver lining in that it was kind of if you, want, if you want to use the term isolated, I guess that might be okay. But still, this is affecting 3,100 students, according to the report. 
And of those 3,100, 47% were athletes, um, scholarship athletes, plenty of them obviously football players and some basketball players to a degree. So from where we sit, we cover the sport nationally. I find this to be a, a pretty massive story. I'm interested to see the reaction over the next day or two. Um, how it affects Roy Williams' legacy. I'm actually not sure, and I know we're going to have a column from you, Parrish, up later on the site where you'll get into a little bit more of that and proper procedure. But my biggest takeaway overall is that this was an investigation that actually really brought about a lot of facts and information that was never fully proven, I guess it might be one word you want to use, but there's a lot more clarity and uh, beyond reasonable doubt involved in this report. And for that, I think Carolina and the NCAA should be thankful that uh, the mystery beyond this is kind of behind them and they can acknowledge things that went wrong. And I guess that's my vague kind of big takeaway with it. Well, let's be honest. Okay, so North Carolina had its hand forced in this. They never wanted to. They were hoping seemingly for, for years, literally years, that this would just go away and it never went away. Like, um, somebody else would just pop up and start talking about it. Somebody else would pop up and start talking about it. Four months later, somebody else would pop up. There would be a news story from the Raleigh News and Observer, which is the uh, local media outlet that has really um, uh, covered this from start to finish uh, more thoroughly than anybody else. Uh, ultimately, they had to commission this investigation. Um, they did. And I, I think if you wanted to try to bottom line it, it would be this. This is exactly what we thought it was. Um, you know, for a while, um, there had been people suggesting that, you know, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't as, as massive as some were suggesting, uh, that it didn't benefit athletes as much as some thought, that it wasn't really as bad as, as, as you know, maybe rival schools were um, insisting. But the truth is it involved 3,100 students at North Carolina, roughly half of them, so you can do the math on it, 1,500, 1,600 uh, were athletes. Um, you know, the majority of the 2005 national title team, Roy's first national title team, uh, were majors in the department, uh, were majoring um, you know, in, in the department that held the paper classes. So this is what we thought it was. I mean, anybody who ever tried to hold on to the idea that this was some um, for lack of a better phrase, witch hunt, it, it looks silly today. This is exactly what most people thought it was. It is um, academic and athletic fraud uh, of the highest order, perhaps unlike uh, anything or certainly like m unlike most things we've seen in the past. It, it lasted uh, nearly two decades. It was wide-ranging. And though none of the coaches were implicated, um, you'd have to be pretty silly uh, to believe that none of them were aware of what was going on. Specifically, Roy Williams, there's two points I think that are important. Uh, one is he acknowledged to investigators that, yes, he was suspicious of his players all majoring in this, in this um, you know, same department and that he actually asked um, an assistant coach to sort of like look into it and make sure the, uh, his athletes weren't being steered into these courses. And then he essentially washed his hands of it. Um, the, another thing that's interesting I think, is that Wayne Walden, who was the associate director of ASPSA and uh, an academic counselor for a number of sports, including men's basketball, um, was, is, is shown to be one of the men, one of the people who steered players into these paper classes. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes when you uh, take a job at a new school, you start working with people 
who you've never known before, never worked with before. So maybe there's a culture in place. And very clearly at North Carolina, this culture was already in place before Roy got there. But perhaps, you know, sometimes there's a culture in place that, that you don't have any control over. You sort of walk into, you're, you're, you're caught off guard. Uh, Wayne Walden is a, is a man who Roy brought with him from Kansas. Uh, he was at Kansas with Roy, and then he worked at North Carolina with Roy. So when you know that a guy who Roy thought highly enough to, to work with both at Kansas and North Carolina um, is caught up you know, smack dab in the middle of this, it suggests that, that, that you know, Roy playing the all shucks things is, is a little, mm-hmm. if you buy that, you're being um, naive. I, I think the larger point that, that, that I would make with all of this is that, and I'm not comparing these cases or situations as apples to apples because they're, they're quite clearly not, but we have seen, you know, over the past, I don't know what it is, four, five, six years, um, multiple, you know, big name coaches get brought down, for lack of a better phrase, um, by, by doing things that used to actually keep you in the clear. Um, I think everybody knows the situation at Connecticut with Nate Miles and essentially that basketball program had a former manager turned agent buying, buying a player. I mean, that's what happened at at Connecticut when they got put on probation. um, They had a manager turned um, agent who bought, bought a player, a recruit for Connecticut. Um, the assistant coaches, I, I believe two of them were sacrificed. There was so much um, evidence that Jim Calhoun was in constant communication with this agent, text messages, phone calls, um, undeniable evidence that they spoke way more often than they should be speaking under normal circumstances. I would argue uh, blindly that there is no head coach who talked to a former manager or an agent as often as Jim Calhoun talked to that former manager and agent in that particular time period when they were recruiting Nate Miles. And yet, Jim Calhoun basically got away with it. At least he wasn't directly implicated in any real, real way because he said, hey, I, I, you know, I, I guess I was suspicious of some things maybe, but I didn't really get involved. You know, I didn't, that's not really my job. Like, I'm coaching a basketball team. He, he, he created plausible deniability, even if it flies in the face of, of common sense. And yet, we've seen other guys fall, basically doing the same thing. And I think that's a, an indication that um, the, the world has changed as it relates to, to, to high-level college athletics. Jim Tressel, you know, basically knew that there was some stuff going on or should have known there was some stuff going on with, uh, you know, discount tattoos and other things around his Ohio State football program. He was actually informed that there was some stuff going on, and he, he, did, he did one of two things. Either A, um, tried to handle it himself, or B, just let it go away and hope it'll disappear. Uh, we saw Joe Paterno at Penn State for years, we now know, decades even, uh, turn a blind eye and a deaf ear toward um, what was uh, possibly the worst thing you could ever imagine um, being the result of a, uh, of a football or basketball culture that has become too dominant. And that's uh, young people were, were sexually abused um, at the hands of Jerry Sandusky um, in a way that, that could have uh, reasonably, you could reasonably believe, could have been prevented if Joe Paterno or other folks connected to that program would have stood up and, and done the things that we thought, that we think um, should be done. And yet, in the spirit of protecting the football program or your own personal brand, um, he, he you know, basically turned that blind eye. 
and he paid a price. He paid a, a massive price for it. And so I guess what I'm saying is um, now here we are with Roy Williams, and it looks like he's going to survive it. In fact, I'm confident he's going to survive it. Um, and he wasn't directly implicated. Again, that's important to repeat. But I do think that Roy Williams basically did here the same thing Jim Tressel did once upon a time at Ohio State, the same thing Joe Paterno did once upon a time at Penn State, meaning he asked at least one question to somebody else in a way that he could say, if this ever hit the fan the way it's hit the fan now, hey, yeah, I was suspicious. I asked somebody else about it, and then I just started coaching my basketball team again. He did just enough to be able to say to an investigator, honestly, yeah, once upon a time I was suspicious. I asked about it, and then I just got back to coaching because I figured um, you know, there are people you know, on the academic side, people more qualified to deal with this type of stuff than me, and then went on about benefiting from the system in place. Um, what we have found is that for decades, maybe in college basketball and college football, you could get away with that. Jim Calhoun got away with that. But Jim Tressel didn't. Joe Paterno didn't. And I think what we're finding more and more is that though Roy Williams might, certainly his reputation has taken a hit here. And so I would never pretend that what was going on at North Carolina with its student athletes is something that, um, you know, goes on other places or has gone on other places. Um, I, I think this is an extreme, extreme and mostly isolated um, example of, of, of wide-ranging academic fraud that benefits athletes, at least in the sense that it kept them eligible when they might not otherwise have been. Um, but I do think that Roy Williams probably handled this about the way most high-major coaches would. Hey, man, okay, uh, my players are making better grades than they probably should. Um, I, I'm wondering why on, it seems a little fishy that they might all be in the same major, the same um, mostly obscure major. But if the rest of the school's signing off on it and other people are cool with it, you know what? I'm just going to not ask too many questions, coach my basketball team, and try to raise a banner. I, I, I don't think what happened, again, what at North Carolina is, is widespread across America. But I do think, and I'm not defending Roy here. He was wrong. But I do think the way Roy handled this is probably the way most high major coaches would handle this. What do you make of that? You're probably right. Uh, can't defend Roy. He's gonna, this will be part of his obituary. I don't know how far down it will be included, but this is part of it. Um, I don't necessarily think that he should lose his job over it. I never thought he was going to. Uh, I, I did wonder if maybe it would get a little bit hairier than, than what we're at right now, but it's not going to, as far as we can tell. Um, you know, Roy definitely was selective and seldom spoke about it. But when forced to, he addressed it. And you know, the past couple of years, I guess my point is he didn't want. He could have known. He, he could have. Well, he didn't yeah, want to know. I mean, yes, there are. There's stuff in the report, basically. You know, that there's a former academic advisor that says he knew that the classes were bogus, but that person says he can't remember if he told Roy or not. Well, how about uh, this? So, like, okay, so this guy, Wayne Walden, who worked with Roy both at Kansas and North Carolina, right. so they are presumably tight, right? If you work with two, if you work with somebody at two different places in two different parts of the country, um, that, that suggests, because, listen, Roy Williams can hire and fire whoever he wants at North Carolina, or at least he could once upon a time. At least he could back then. If Wayne Walton's working at North Carolina with Roy after he worked at Kansas with Roy, that's because Roy wanted him there, okay? That, mm -hmm. that, that, so we can, we can 
I think, deduct from that that those guys are tied. Wayne Walden admits, admits in this report um, that, that he knew the classes were fraudulent and admits to steering players into these paper classes. Um, okay, so if Roy Williams is suspicious and, and you're really genuinely interested in getting to the bottom of this, Right. What do you do? You pick up the phone to your guy or you sit down with your guy, whether it's at dinner, lunch, breakfast, beers, whatever. And you say, Wayne, what's going on here? Level with me. He, that's an easy conversation to have. You don't right. want to know. All right. So if you don't know, it's because you don't want to know. Like I'm watching House of Cards right now. I'm the one person in America who actually <laughs> has never watched House of Cards. And so I decided after I wrapped up the first season of Fargo, um, which is terrific, by the way, if you have I got to get on that still. Yeah. It's terrific. Um, so I'm watching House of Cards right now, and the episode I just watched um, late last night was one where, and I'm not ruining it for anybody, If turn off for the next two minutes if you still want to watch House of Cards. Uh, but uh, uh, Pete Russo, who's running for governor, right, um, they set him up to like have a, a, a fall after some bad stuff goes down. And, and basically, uh, Kevin Spacey's character's right-hand man sets up Russo with, uh, you know, in a bad situation that will basically end his political career. He, they, they, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So they set a trap for him and he falls for it predictably. And so there's a point where Kevin Spacey is talking to his right hand guy and he says, so what's going on with Russo? And the guy says, listen, it's, um, you know, everything's going as planned. And Kevin Spacey says, so like where, what's happening? And the guy says, do you really want to know? Do you need the details? And Kevin Spacey says, I don't need the details. In other words, I don't need to know what's happening. Just I need to know. I need to know everything's cool. Is everything cool? Yes. Okay. I don't need the details then because I, if I, I just I, I'm better off not knowing the details. In my opinion, that is exactly what happened with Roy Williams here. Uh, okay. Is Rashad McCants eligible? Yes. What about the rest of my team? Sure. It seems a little fishy, doesn't it? Probably. Coach, do you need to know the details? Listen, if everybody else has signed off on this, I'm just going to go to practice right now. I, I, again, I'm totally paraphrasing and making up a hypothetical situation, but my larger point is simple. Um, if Roy Williams was fishy and wanted to know, he's a phone call away from a guy he worked with at two different places who knew what was going on, who was steering players into this program. To the extent that Roy Williams didn't know, he didn't want to know. And though that's a bad look for Roy, and it's an indefensible look for Roy, I, I say all that to say, I do think that that's probably not unique to Roy. I think most coaches um, would have handled it similarly. Now, going forward, you you know, I, at least I right. hope you know, you you better not handle it similarly. If you if you are fishy of something, uh, if you think something's fishy, you're suspicious of it, uh, then you better try to get to the bottom of it. Or yet, you or you might risk being the next Roy Williams, who's embarrassed in a investigation like this. But at the time, Roy Williams was was basically turning his head and saying, you know what, um, I don't need to know. I think at that time, most coaches would have handled it similarly. I, well, I, that's the here's the thing. So it, we're also, and that's I think that's important to remember. It doesn't excuse it whatsoever. But when a lot of this was happening, 2005, the general temperament and behavior and go abouts of these coaches at the college football and college basketball level was very much more. I don't know anything. Everything's going to be okay. That's not the expectation of these guys at any sort of level today, including, you know, the APR, which judges coaches based on if your players graduate, it, you know, you're going to be held responsible and your program is going to be punished if they're not graduating or if their grades are terrible, you're going to be, you know, docked and perhaps miss postseason stuff. So even at the infrastructure level of the NCAA to just general 
public opinion and consensus. This is no longer an acceptable excuse. But when a lot of this was happening and Williams might have had some suspicions in 2005, he might have thought, you know what, if something like this is happening and I really don't know about it, it won't really affect me all that much. I think part of that could have been happening. Also, I think from- I think that is the prevailing um, uh, culture in college football and college basketball once upon a time. I Correct. Don't know, I don't, now that has definitively changed, but I think yeah. that shift happened about three, four years ago. I don't. Right? Even, I don't know. I think it's constantly changing. Like you know what? Okay. Like I was talking to, and and I don't mean just in in regard to this. Well, certainly the culture has changed, and like the rules have changed. Like once upon a time, if your assistant coaches just went out there and got wild, right? I mean, they're just right. like throwing money yeah. around. You know, that you would you basically you they get caught. They would tell the investigators you didn't know anything about it. You would tell investigators you didn't know anything about it. You'd fire them, then help them throughout life, however you need to help them, and you sort of live the the other way. That is the way it worked. That's why you always heard assistant coaches out there getting all the stuff done, and head coaches were always like, I didn't know. Um, it's because you could get away with that. Well, now the rules actually, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but essentially the rules are head coaches are responsible for their assistant coaches. Saying you didn't know or you – had, you know, you were in the dark is no longer an excuse. You are responsible for the people who work for you. So I was up at Virginia Tech, like in a meeting with Buzz Williams. It was a staff meeting. And he went through um, step by step, basically informing his staff, like, don't get me fired. Like, it, that was the message. Like, listen, let's go out and work. Let's go out and, and, and do what we got to do to get players. But you do not, once upon a time, I, you couldn't get me fired. Now I will get fired because of you. And, and I, I think that's so, like, by definition, that has changed the culture of high major college athletics. But in other ways, things have changed as well, like um, with the national spotlight that's shining on sexual assault and uh, domestic violence. Um, there are things that you could do, hell, I think a year ago that you couldn't do now. Um, I, don't bring, I don't mean to bring Michael Dixon up because I found him to be a, a pleasant young guy. He's somebody I like, and he had absolutely zero issues, issues on or off the court at Memphis. But I do wonder... If Josh Pastor could have enrolled Michael Dixon right now, uh, the way he did a year ago, like I wonder if you could bring, if you could genuinely enroll somebody who at a previous school was was um, uh, um, uh, charged isn't the right word, um, who was was uh, was heavily accused or uh, yeah was accused of sexual assault twice. He was Michael Dixon. Like this is a fact. Accused by two different women, two different times of sexual assault. Never charged in any case. I wonder if the if the climate has changed so much in college athletics that you could you could enroll that person now, the same way you could have enrolled him last year. Doriel Green Beckham at Missouri. I want. In fact, I think Oklahoma has acknowledged this publicly. Right. Um, they could not have enrolled him now after Ray Rice. They could have never enrolled him. They they did it before Ray Rice. They couldn't after Ray Rice. So I think the culture has changed uh, drastically in a variety of ways, and it's still changing. Uh, but again, just to, to wrap it back around, um, I think at the time Roy Williams was, I think at the time Roy Williams was saying, um, "Hey, listen, I I was suspicious, but I didn't know." Um, I I think that that's probably the way most guys would have handled it in that time frame. Now you can't, but then I think I think you might have. Um, I want to give uh, writer Amanda Albright credit for this stat because I just saw that she tweeted or someone retweeted into my timeline. I just wanted to hit on this real quick, GP. But So under Roy, 167 men's basketball players took AFAM, under Doherty, 42, under Bill Guthrie, 17, and under Dean Smith, 54. I'm intrigued on how and when – we're never going to really know this – but how and when this – 
sort of culture of fraudulent classes actually began, why it began. You know, we haven't mentioned, by the way, Deborah Crowder, who is really the biggest catalyst, I think, to this. She was former academic advisor, Dr. Julius Niangro, who Crowder's retired. Niangro left the university a few years back when this really started to bubble up. And the News and Observer out of um, out of Raleigh, who, by the way, just, I mean, deserves plenty of awards. Dan Kane just killed this story, man. And without his reporting and that newspaper's reporting, I just don't know if this ever gets out. Um, but, you know, previous coaches this existed under as well. I um, wonder if you know, Doherty, Dean Smith, 54 players. Yeah. I mean, th- these, these are heavy numbers, GP. This this is not something that happened between 2003 and 2007-ish. I mean, it dates back to essentially the year when Carolina won its last title under Dean Smith. We're talking about almost two decades here. That's fairly heavy stuff. And, you know, as we record this, I'm kind of just tracking Twitter in real time and and. I don't know if it's good news, but I mean, there is the proper amount of still shock at this, I guess, at the the way a lot of these suspicions were confirmed. But also just like it's kind of a joke that it ever got to this point when we're talking about 3,100 students. Yeah, it's an isolated class. But as the report says and Wanstein says in the report, you know, Carolina almost had this uh, arrogance about it that it's such a proud public academic institution. I mean, you know, prior to this, it was considered honestly a top 10 public uh, academic university in the in the country um so there was almost this you know eh, fraudulent classes that kind of stuff on that level to grow to that big it's not really going to happen with us here right then and there that's obviously all been completely shattered the other thing worth pointing out here is that um some of the people who you know worked in these departments and and worked around the student athletes have also told investigators and it's detailed in this report that that quite simply there were players who would not have remained eligible at North Carolina, wouldn't have been able to do the actual work um, if not for these types of fraudulent classes. And so, uh, again, this is just a, a systematic problem, and it might, it might be something that leads North Carolina to, to recruiting a certain level uh, uh, on the academic side uh, of student-athletes. I mean, you know, Stanford can't, you know, enroll everybody it wants to enroll. You know, Vanderbilt cannot enroll everybody it wants to enroll. Duke cannot enroll everybody it wants to enroll, although I recognize most of those schools, like, listen, if there's a top 10 recruit that wants to go who's borderline, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. But um, this is also, it, it could boil down to, it, it, is, it is the issue you, you run into when you are considered a prestigious university and you are trying to enroll uh, sure. You know, athletes who, who maybe aren't just you know, simply qualified to, to do the work, um, then you end up. And, and my guess is it, this is all rooted in that. Uh, I mean, where did it begin? How did it begin? Why did it grow? I, I, you know, there's a lot of um, details in the answers to all of those questions. But I think if you were trying to simplify it, it would be that um, somebody recognized somewhere that to, to keep athletes eligible in 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 sports uh, that produce revenue and produce, you know, school pride um, and, and make national headlines uh, that they needed to cut a corner and then cutting a quarter turned into cutting an entire block. And then like, you know, you look up and I'm confident you don't even know how it, it grew to, to the extent that it grew. But again, it's, it fundamentally, this is a problem. Listen, this is, 
we shouldn't be having multi-million dollar sports teams connected to universities. I mean, that's ultimately the problem here, right? I mean, if you could blow the whole stupid I system mean, Yeah, up, I mean, that is, uh, but that's a whole nother summit. I but mean, yeah. right. I mean, listen, we're not going to change the world, but like, you know, when you connect multi-million dollar revenue producing sports teams um, that, that, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people will, will pay to go watch. That's certainly true on the football side of things and basketball, you know, upwards of 20,000 will pay to watch tell, you know, that where, where television networks will pay millions, if not billions of dollars to, to put on, um, over the air. Um, this is what you get. It's not what you get everywhere, but this is always the type of thing that is possible because, you know, folks are, fo- are focused on, on the bottom line and on the banners raised. And, and so uh, here we are. Let's uh, transition a little bit into some actual college basketball uh, stuff. News and notes presented by Squarespace. So uh, the first one I want to touch on, I went to Memphis Madness on, on Saturday night. It was one of many I, um, around the country. I've been to a bunch of them now. I've been to Kentucky multiple times. I've been to um, Kansas. I've been to Memphis, obviously. I, I I think I've been to Michigan State before. I think I've been to Carolina before. And one of the complaints, to the extent that there were complaints about any of these, is um, at least here in Memphis, folks were like, you know, there was no energy in the building. Now, they had you know around 15,000 people. Rick Ross performed. It, it was what it was. But the thing I've tried to explain to people here locally, where I live, is that I've been to all of them, and they are all boring, all of them. Like, you know, like, you know if you can't get excited about – getting an autograph from a basketball player or seeing a recruit for the first time or watching guys get introduced or, or, or uh, seeing somebody take a jumper or attempt a dunk or hearing from your head coach. Like if that, if that doesn't get you off, you're going to be bored by these things. And I wonder if they have, they're still effective for recruits. I, I don't th- I think that's undeniable. I mean, if, if you would have been sitting where I was sitting and watch Rick Ross, basically, you know, right. inter, you know, interact with recruits and, and the looks on their faces, like it still has an impact on recruiting. And Memphis did get a commitment, you know, roughly 48 hours from one of the kids who was in, an att- in attendance. Uh, I, I think the idea of Drake being in Lexington, that's a big deal for recruits. So it's still effective in that regard. But like once upon a time, the slam dunk competition in the NBA was a big, big deal. And now it's like people are mostly bored by it. I wonder if the madness celebrations aren't are we over them? Like, I mean, uh, in terms of entertainment from a, you know, from a spectator's perspective, are they still what they used to be? Uh, no, they definitely changed. You know, it's yeah, it's it's so much for the recruits. I mean, I went to Villanova last year and Nicki Minaj performed and I was in the hallway back back, you know, in the in the back uh, channels of the um, of the arena. And, you know, I like walked past Nicki Minaj, who was taking a photo with you know, five or six Villanova basketball players. So there is certainly a tremendous amount of impact on the players and the programs from that standpoint. In terms of fan interest, uh, very localized. You know, I can remember the 1990s when ESPN would have these big um, blowout TV events and go live to a bunch of different spots. And they do it now, but it's not like it was. It's not on ESPN's primary channel. And Dick Vitale is not there anymore. And it's much more, you know, hop in here, there, and, and wherever for a couple of hours. And that's pretty much it. Now it's it's for a good quick video. Like Michigan State is this Friday. Tom Izzo is going to do something ridiculous, and we will have it on the site for you by Saturday morning at the latest. I promise you that will happen because it's Izzo, and they always do something interesting. And I guess this is his yeah, – some sort of anniversary. So I think he's going to do something wild. But anyway, um, overall, Midnight Madness and its usefulness or its 
its relevance and impact, I think, is certainly diminished. And... I don't even mean relevance and impact. I think it still is impactful for a certain segment. But I guess my point was this. If you're a fan and you are at a madness celebration, whether it's Memphis, Kentucky, and you go, you know, I'm, I'm bored – I wish they would do. I guess my question is, what do you wish they would do? Like, if, I mean, there's yeah, nothing, yeah, they, they, these these are boring events. And, yeah, it's got to be a it's a it's got to be a concert. It's got to be a concert, basically. I mean, that's and what even you've that, got. honestly, like I'm a Rick Ross fan, but like, after 15 minutes, you were like, all right, this, this is going on too long, you know. <laughs> and 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 like because I think a concert's a certain set of you know state of mind. Like, hey, if you're going to a Rick Ross show. Yeah, you're yeah. going to go to a Rick Ross show and do it a little differently than, hey, we're going to watch Shaq Goodwin and Austin Nichols take jumpers, and then Rick Ross is going to come out. And 30 minutes felt like a long time, um, even for people who knew all the songs, right? So um, I don't know. I was just, I guess my bottom line would be, um, if you are, if you can't get off on watching a three-point competition or hearing from your head coach or taking a picture of a player, then these things just aren't for you. Complaining about them is like, it's like, um, you know, I. I went outside in the thunderstorm and it just bothered me because it was raining. Well, that's what it does in a thunderstorm. Like, you know, what did you expect? You know, and th these are what these madness celebrations are. So if you're bored by them, then you're bored by the idea of them. And you probably should just. Uh, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I'm not letting you get off this podcast, though, without talking about you're a fatty. You won a freaking wing eating contest and you got free wings for a year, sure. which you definitely don't need, by the way. Yeah. Um, what does and that mean? you was that a professional of basketball player at eating wings. And how many did you eat? And how much time did you have? Oh, this yeah, is it ridiculous. A, it was a two-minute wing eating competition. It was me and uh, a former uh, Washington standout, now in Memphis Grizzly Quincy Pondexter, and then the defending or the reigning champion, uh, whose name escapes me right now. I apologize to. He, <laughs> he was he was a gentleman, and so. Um, I, uh, it was a wing stop, wing eating competition. Of course, Rick Ross owns a bunch of wing stops here in Memphis. And so, um, I, I had no plans to win it, but I honestly, I just got into it. I got in, I got into a rhythm. You know, I felt like, you know, I, I felt like, like it, when Kevin Pangos gets into a rhythm, like that's yeah. what I, that's, that's <laughs> the what... Kevin Pangos of eating wings. I wake up on Saturday morning, I scroll my feet and I see your face just gouging wings and really you bragging about how you I'm like what on earth did this dude do last night I didn't I just, even think you were going to be doing it I just like to win things you know and I, I I can pretend that I don't care but at the end of the day I enjoy having my my arm raised in in victory and so um it was a nice event and yet in in a a, a a wonderful experience and I um I do it's true I have free wings for for a year and so basically I'm just going to have like football parties every weekend we're just going to get a bunch of wings every every Saturday and Sunday I I mean I don't know what to do with free wings for a year I've never I've never been in this situation but I am a, a, both appreciative of uh of of Wingstop for for presenting uh this opportunity to me and uh of Quincy Pondexter and the reigning champion for uh for uh, falling victim to my wing eating skill. That, that is important to note, by the way. So you're only competing against two other people. I mean, if you really line up like 20 people, this could be a different situation. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I blew them out. I mean, it wasn't even close. I, I, the, the buzzer sounded after two minutes, and I looked, I looked up with, with wings sauce all over my face, and I, uh, I, I told the judges on microphone, count my bones. <laughs> count my bones. Because I knew. I felt good. I felt like I really got into Help rhythm. my bones. Are you a better wing eater or wiffle ball player? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, it, it's, it's, 
it's it's like asking Dave Grohl is he a better frontman or drummer? You know, like I don't. He's I don't, a better drummer, but it's close. <laughs> but yeah, right, like I you, mean, you see my point. Like I'm great yeah. at both. You know, like uh, well, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm 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 a lot like Dave Grohl. I'm like Dave Grohl with short, right, we, <laughs> with shorter hair and like uh and a and a, and a, and a, a an ever growing bald spot. But um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm a champion at both. That's undeniable. I mean, I, there's evidence. I'm champions at both. The other thing I want to ask you about, news and notes presented by Squaresmith, Aaron Harrison voted SEC Preseason Player of the Year by SEC Media. I guess that's who voted on it. Um, I, I get it on one hand if you're going to you know, pick a player off the team that everybody can, thinks is going to be the, the champion of that league, and, and that's Kentucky. They, I believe it was a unanimous pick among SEC Media that uh, Kentucky is going to, to win. Florida was second. Arkansas was third. Um, but I, I don't think Aaron Harrison's going to be the best player on the team. I think that's going to be Carl Towns, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is going to be Carl Towns. I'm not totally shocked by it, I guess. You know, returning player, hit some big shots. We talked about him on the podcast last week, him and his brother, quite a bit. Yeah, Kentucky should win the league, so you're going to – I guess they think who's going to be the the highest score on Kentucky this year. Um, I think Towns will be the best player. I think there could be a situation, honestly, where maybe Harrison's the third best player. I mean, we'll see what Trey Lyles or Willie Cauley-Stein end up doing. You know, and Just in terms of overall production, I guess Harrison's not a bad choice. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere around the league, I mean – Florida's kind of a crapshoot right now. Chris Walker suspended for the first couple of games. Um, not that that's going to have you know true impact on the league or whatever, but Michael Frazier should be solid. Bobby Portis at Arkansas is a good player. Jordan Mickey. Jordan Mickey, I love Jordan Mickey's game, but I don't think LSU is going to win enough, and I don't know if he'll do enough to warrant it. So ultimately, I don't have a huge issue with it, but I think when we get to February, we're going to clearly see that. Carl Anthony Towns is by far Kentucky's best yeah, player. I, I'm, I'm on board with you here. Like, uh, it's not who I would have picked, but I don't think there's anything crazy a, a, about it. Last thing, news and notes presented by Squarespace. Marcus Kennedy at SMU might be ineligible this season. My God, poor Larry Brown. I just feel sick for it. <laughs> he loses Emmanuel Moutier to China, and now, uh, at least at this moment, it appears he might lose Marcus Kennedy at well. I mean, like, you, you just hope if you're Larry Brown, you can get the talent in place so that you can coach him to maybe something significant, and then you do it. Um, at least on paper, and it, it it might not materialize. Poor guy, Larry Brown. He must be frustrated uh, beyond yeah, belief, GP. right? Uh, listen, Moutier would have been his best player, and I had Kennedy in our AAC preview as the league player of the year. Um, they've got – I mean – the silver lining is that SMU actually has a pretty solid front court, but without Kennedy, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they're even a, a guarantee to finish second in the league. This also was kind of a surprising story under the radar, even in college basketball circles, because I don't know, maybe I was out to lunch on it. I don't know if you realized it, but this kind of came about. Larry Brown was like, oh, yeah, by the way, Marcus Kennedy, he's not actually fully eligible to play right now. He's got to get some stuff with his grades in order. And we we're like, whoa, what? Right. This is this is actually a situation. Honestly, so I like saw I saw Larry in Memphis. He was in town recruiting and um, he and I have a mutual friend. And so, like, I what's today? Today is. Wednesday, twenty second of when, yeah, Wednesday. Uh, one day, one day last week, I, I guess it was last Thursday. Like I saw Larry, like you know, I like I was with Larry Brown, and like he he certainly didn't mention this. We talked about his team extensively, so I think it's one of those things that he he wanted maybe uh, certainly wanted to keep secret, and then it was brought to him in a in an official way, and and he had to address it. Um, but I, I would say this with and 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 this is almost just across the board, high major athletics. If you are a student athlete in men's basketball or football, and you are ineligible. One once you're already in school, um, that just means you weren't doing the work. I mean, there's no excuse for it. There's yeah. mandatory tutoring. There's so much. The support systems for these student athletes are off the charts. Like it is, you if you ever hear 
I, I don't. I think you can be dumb and still remain eligible just because the support system's so strong, right? And oh so yeah, well, you, we've seen it firsthand. I yeah, mean, there's plenty. And, yeah, and, and so like it, you know, it, it's just a, a shame that a, a kid could be put in this opportunity where he might genuinely be the favorite to be in a, a conference player of the year. He's got this incredible support system in place, and still, for whatever reason. Uh, uh, blows it. We'll see. It's not done yet. He could still be eligible, but certainly um, uh, that's one of the bigger developments in college basketball this week. Marcus Kennedy um, at least um, in danger of being ineligible at SMU. Remember, today's Ion College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is constantly improving its platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, they got an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Starts at just $8 a month, includes free domain name if you sign up for a year, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, meaning your content will look uh, great on every device every single time. So go ahead and launch a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Again, when you sign up for the Squarespace, uh, make sure to use the offer code FUN and you'll get 10% off and it shows support uh, for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. That's Squarespace where everything you need to create an exceptional website is available. Okay, well, listen, we kept you long enough. As always, thanks for being here. Thanks to Matt Norlander. Remember to subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast uh, on iTunes. That's the quickest way to make sure you get the latest uh, episode. And uh, either way, we will be back uh, next week. Thanks so much. Take care.